You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Good morning, welcome to the show. Thursday, October the 20th. I was reminded by a friend earlier this week of the old saying that the British like their politics as they like their weather. Moderate. Unfortunately, neither is at present. Though the rain that falls outside my window in TW11 will not be of great sorrow or inconvenience to the jump racing fraternity in the UK or indeed Ireland if it is falling at Cheltenham Racecourse who are due to stage their first significant meeting of the season this weekend on Friday and Saturday, as you were hearing from Tom on yesterday's podcast. As far as racing's own political climate goes, well, I'm not sure there's been any jostling or manhandling of the BHA's headquarters in High Hoban as there was in Westminster for the vote last night, but there was a, a press release that raised a few eyebrows yesterday from the British Horse Racing Authority, the Thoroughbred Group and the Racecourse Association which was headlined, Racing's leaders confirmed series of measures to improve race competitiveness in 2023. These involved, their words, tactical interventions, including the reduction of programmed races at times of the year when field sizes are most under pressure. So the headline was that 170 races would be strategically cut. Hurrah, everyone cheered until you realised that those would be redistributed elsewhere in the programme and that some seven race cards would become six race cards in the summer. What was the thinking behind this? I've been talking to the BHA's Chief Operating Officer, Richard Wayman. Well, morning, Nick. After the, uh, the, the difficult summer that we've had in 2022 with field sizes, I think there was a general acknowledgement across the entire sport that steps were required to uh, try to reduce the risk of us finding ourselves in a, a similar situation next year. So that was at the heart of, of, of what was uh, the thinking. What we obviously did back in September with the with the industry meeting um, involving various leaders from across the sport was uh, sort of a step back and saying we need to look at this more strategically for the future to actually think about our sport and, and the direction it's going in to, to ensure that we have a, a sustainable, robust, uh, popular sport for the years to come. But obviously decisions like that uh, and thoughts around that will take a little bit of time. And so the package of measures yesterday was very much a uh, a sort of a short term uh, uh, approach to ensuring that we have or seeking to ensure that we have a better time of things in 2023, allowing us then the time to to take uh, to undertake that more fundamental work for 2024 and beyond. When we had our last quite long chat at the end of it, you conceded that a reduction in fixtures was the best solution or was part of the best solution to sorting out racing's problems. Do you still stand by that, that a reduction in fixtures is ultimately what is desirable, but until you can achieve that in 2024, you just have to kind of fiddle around in 2023? I think the the answer to that question is we as a sport have got to decide what is what is it we're trying to deliver is it 
is it 90% of races with eight or more runners? Is it, is it something else? Because otherwise you just end up in a rather emotive debate around we should cut fixtures, we shouldn't cut fixtures, should it be 100, should it be 50? And I think that's probably the wrong place to come at it from. So for me, the starting place is what is it that the sport and its customers actually want? What is going to sustain our future? Once, once there is an agreement around that and what we're trying to achieve, then I think you get to a, then you can begin to work to the, to, to the solution of well how many races or how many fixtures does that, that does that then require and i'd probably come at it from that way um but but again going back to what we've discussed previously i do think there it's undoubtedly at certain times of the year particularly the height of the summer mm. we we have a volume of races that stretches our horse population and that wasn't new in 2022 that's been the case for, for many years what tends to happen though nick is i think that some years conditions conspire against you and and the out the outcome is a worse one other years conditions are more in favor and actually it's not so challenging through that period and obviously what happened this year was was a period from sort of april right really through until the beginning of september where the ground was faster than it normally is through that period and of course then you have the circumstances that make that stretching of the horse population particularly challenging i think we faced a lot of that obviously through the last few months i'm pleased that you said what the customer wants in your in your answer there because so few of racing exec executives ever say what the customer wants when when talking when, when framing these debates do you think that the customer wants fewer races when they've paid their money to go to the sport so in the summer for example where you're you're cutting the maximum average races on a card from 6.5 to 6 and then potentially redistributing those races in the autumn on the all weather so as to mitigate against any revenue loss for the sport do you think those any of those customers would say to you richard what i really want is to go racing and have fewer races on the card i'd, I'd rather go and have six than seven please yeah and i i, I don't believe that I, equally um nick i don't know if we necessarily have um hard data that tells us exactly um what customers views are regarding the number of races on a card and you know that lack of insight from our customers is is a challenge for us as a sport because every industry every business wants to know what, what its customers believe and if having eight or nine races is very important to customers rather than six or seven we should know that but actually what I, what i believe at the moment is more in the forefront of customers minds is less around whether it's six seven or eight races it's actually when we go racing or when we go to place a bet on racing and we have race after race of small fields that that's a turnoff for people and you know plenty of race goers uh, when i'm on the race course will come up and, and, and say that to me so i think fundamentally the first thing we have to do here is ensure that as with other sports the sport that we're providing to our customers is attractive competitive compelling and that for me, for me feels the right starting point rather than a debate around whether it's six seven eight races on a card is this not evidence that actually this idea that the bha has been granted a mandate to govern a complete nonsense really you're you're having to bend to the will of the race courses who don't want any major cutting of fixtures for obvious and perfectly understandable reasons but are happy to take what you would call strategic cuts to to races 
uh, so long as that effect is mitigated elsewhere in the year really nothing's changed you're just shuffling the decks around uh, deck chairs around on the titanic well, I mean, uh, first thing, I, I wouldn't call the announcement yesterday strategic. They were a low, they were a number of tactical measures that we have introduced to try and improve things in 2023. The, 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 the strategic work is the work that we're now undertaking for 2024 and beyond, which is asking ourselves much bigger questions around how do we want our sport to look in the years ahead, and and the stuff that was announced yesterday was was a much more immediate. Um, what can we do in the short term, bearing in mind the fixture list that had been published two or three months ago, what can we do with the tools available to us to try and improve things in, in 2023? <clears throat> so I would absolutely say, you know, try and be absolutely clear on this, that the measures yesterday were not strategic measures. These were just tactical improvements that we believe will make a difference next year. And you've made quite a bit of mention about the the black type program toward the the back end of of this which is which is quite interesting that that there will be a a, a lengthy and detailed look at, at removing some black type races to try and um consolidate and strengthen the, the 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 top end of the of the race program can you give any more details on that so uh, two fundamental aims with the black type program i think one is that we we want our horses to be able to compete for for uh, more attractive prize money and that's really important at a time when we see the, the uh, an increasing drain of talent from our shores secondly we want a program at that top end that encourages these better horses to uh, actually take each other on more often rather than giving them a, a proliferation of opportunities that means that outside of the biggest festivals um, the horses can effectively avoid each other and, we, and we're left with a fairly uncompetitive program. So the work that's been undertaken at the moment by the pattern committees, um, the flat and the jump pattern committees, on the flat side we are um, hoping to announce some, some changes for, 20, for, for, the, uh, for 2023 imminently it will again be a, a staged process, uh, uh, Nick, that uh, we're not going to get everything uh, in, in year one in 2023 that we would seek to achieve in a slightly longer term. But a bit like with what we discussed um, that we announced yesterday, we're seeking to make some improvements to that black type flat program in time for 23. In terms of the jump uh, pattern, that's still that's work uh, is still continuing. Um, we anticipate, however, whether that's more likely to uh, affect the 23-24 season. So effectively, will we'll, uh, impact the jump programme at the end of, of, of 2023 with some, some refinements to the programme there. It's, it's too early to get into specific races. But obviously, what we are doing is working with the race courses and the participants at the moment in undertaking a, a thorough review of those, of, those, of those pattern races, pattern and listed races, and ascertaining which of those really are, are surplus to requirements. i just um, seen one little sentence here, which was just down the bottom, which was that uh, overseas trained runners are back in low-grade handicaps, except, it says, during those times of the year where there are insufficient opportunities for British trained runners, specifically from the 1st of September to the 31st of December. Is it definitive, then, that from the 1st of January to the 31st of August, um, overseas runners can participate in low-grade handicaps. That is that is an absolute, is it? Yeah, oh, yes, absolutely. So we um, we have decided to to uh, as part of trying to improve competitiveness to open up those lower-grade handicaps um, to overseas overseas trained runners again. 
Um, you, you might recall when we um, when we were not going, when we were taking the alternative approach, we really suggested there were a couple of reasons for for that. Number one reason was that you know these low grade handicaps is generally where we got plenty of runners, and indeed there are times of the year when um, we are eliminating plenty of horses, i.e., particularly on the on the flat in the autumn. Um, the other issue was that. Um, in these low grade handicaps, we felt there were the, the data was telling us that these horses, the overseas trained horses, were outperforming by some significant way what we would expect them to do. So, what we've done in trying to um, uh, take a, a, a find a balance to this is to say, well, yes, we we will accept these horses back in again if if overseas trainers would like to to run them in in these low grade handicaps, but with the first point in mind to say, but on the flat in the autumn. That won't be possible because we have to prioritise the domestic horses who are at that time of year sometimes struggling to get a run. And secondly, we've instructed the our handicapping team that if they have any concerns around uh, allocating an accurate rating to an overseas trained horse, then they should err on the side of, of withholding a rating and therefore that horse couldn't run. So we're trying to boost competitiveness still have in mind those issues that, that were at the, at the heart of the original policy but hopefully um this will you know we'll, we'll, we'll deal with all of those things all right that was richard wayman the chief operating officer from the british horse racing authority listening to that was jane mangan uh, i know that last little point jane will have pleased you overseas trained runners will be able to participate in low-grade handicaps it's not the headline act here but it's the one that will appeat your interest the most it may as well have been a headline act, given the amount of airtime that it got, particularly from me um, and, and trainers involved. So that'll be welcomed. I'm not surprised that uh, it is except for the period of December or September to December. But it's a move that will be welcomed by many trainers over here. I think it's the sensible move. And uh, if anybody's a regular listener, I don't need to go into why I think that. OK. All right. Well, if they're not a regular listener, um, why do you think that? I, just, I, I thought the move was nonsensical. It was first brought in two years ago because of COVID. And I, I say those words, um, you know, with air inverted commas um, in my fingers, to be honest, because it was never because of COVID. It was always going to be introduced because they felt that that was, they, as they outlined, they felt that Irish train runners were outperforming and all this other crap. But I, I don't for one second believe that that was the case. And um I thought the argument for making racing more competitive was hypocritical when you weren't allowing certain horses to run in those types of races. Okay, so is this race pruning um, going to grow the sport or is it death by, I don't know, 170 or whatever it is, cuts? Um, I would say it's reshuffling the pack because they don't have an awful lot of room for manoeuvre. As Richard said, the fixture list is released, so they can't prune actual fixtures so pruning a few races here and there and essentially when you read the headline you think those 170 races are gone in the bin move on but they're actually redistributed in the autumn so it's just for the july and august period you've got around 120 flat races between 40 and 50 jumps races and many of them are redistributed to the autumn and do you think that having eight possibly nine race cards on the all-weather in October, November, or is beneficial to the sport? Well, I, I personally don't in terms of a customer experience, but I understand that putting those on mitigates mitigate against the financial loss that will be incurred from the loss of media rights um, 
if you take those races away from racecourse or racecourse groups in the summer. You know, whether those races can be transferred amongst racecourses within groups, of course, is a is a moot point. And when we talk about uh, restructuring fixture lists, um, redistributing races, or ultimately trying to improve the competitiveness of racing, it's all with a view to enhancing the industry's position and the health of the industry overall. But of course, with the fan base, the person who goes racing, the person who places the better, the person who simply wants to enjoy the entertainment that the sport provides, they are a core part of the health of our industry. So that in turn needs to be a serious consideration. And when you look today, a day in October, yes, okay, the ground is probably unseasonably fast for the time of year. Carlisle hosts six races, of which there are 32 runners, and not one of those six races has eight runners, i.e. three-way, each-way betting. So I'd imagine that probably doesn't fit into the customer experience. So there's so much more to be done. This is a little start. This is chipping the tip of the iceberg that sank the Titanic. If we're going to completely avoid the iceberg, we're going to have to do an awful lot more. Well, news came to us yesterday of the retirement of Perfect Power, who was a a really smart two-year-old, multiple Group 1 winner, and then translated that form with a resounding victory in the Commonwealth Cup at three. He was by last season's first season stallion sensation, Ardad, and he offers Dallam Hall stud uh, something really interesting, a, a pure sprinter of, of great precocity. His trainer uh, was, is Richard Fahey and is with me now. Uh, Richard, a, a glorious surprise package in many respects, I guess, this horse. Yeah, look, he was a super temperament. Uh, won on any ground, uh, and was an exceptional, exceptional horse to train. A bit unlucky to to be uh, beaten as a two-year-old. A little bit unlucky. Newcastle he missed the kick, and probably should have won the Richmond. So <laughs> you're looking at a horse that could have won his uh, six races as a two-year-old. So very precautious, and and sometimes with them precautious ones that they don't train on well. Went on to Newbury there and won over seven, and as you say, won a won a group one at Royal Ascot. But uh, for for a sprinting horse, he, he had a great mind and uh, a wonderful horse to be around, and a fantastic attitude. And as I say, he's he's won on fast ground, he's won on easy ground, and he's probably what what people want nowadays. He's he's uh, he's, he's speed, you know, and uh, I'm sure he'll he'll help any mare that uh, he covers, whether whether they're uh, whether they're miles, mile and a half, or you put speed into them and a good mind into them, you know. Um, the one thing about Ardad, even though he took a few people by surprise as a stallion, we've talked about him quite a lot on this show with with Simon Sweeting, who stands in with Richard Brown, who bought him, and and this horse is that that he comes from a family of terrific sprinters. It's a very old school, pure pure speed line, really. But what struck me about your horse was always how laid back he seemed for for a horse with so much pace. He, he, uh, he, you know, you sort of think of a sharp two-year-old. You think of a fellow that's, that's, that's on it the whole time. He wasn't. He was just horizontal, really. I mean, uh, I remember the girl Tina Carr who, who rode him uh, uh, about an hour and a half before the, the Commonwealth Cup. And and funny enough, uh, the Norfolk. He's panned out in his box, laid laid absolutely horizontal. You know. And uh, didn't worry about anything. Never sweated. Never worried. Never did anything wrong. He was he was a pure gent to train. You know. 
and as far as you're concerned, he came at a, a quite an important time because I know you were rebuilding, restocking up the yard, wanting to get a lot more young horses in. A lot of the old boys had done their bit. You know, how crucial was he just just coming along at the right time? Uh, he was. Uh, he, he saved us. The ship was, the sh- <laughs> the ship was sinking a touch. Uh, as you say, you, you get these good old hardy horses and good old handicappers and decent horses and. You know, you you, you you sort of don't really appreciate them till they're gone. And we were we were in a, a sort of uh, uh, um, a period where where we were trying to find some better horses. And well, he he came along and said, "I'm here. You know, don't worry. I'm I'll, I'll, I'm here to help. You know." And he did help us. Now it uh, it got us back, got us back in the limelight, which which you need in our industry. I'm afraid you're as good as your last runner and. Uh, we were sort of dwindling a little bit, and, and he came along. So, but uh, as I say, what a wonderful horse to train, and fantastic mind, and God, I'd be, I'd be shocked if he if he doesn't uh, if he doesn't make a stallion because he, he had all the attributes of uh, of a horse that that'll help a mare, uh, you know, hot ones, slow ones. Uh, he's and and he he stayed seven furlongs as well, you know. So uh, he's a he's, he's he's a good attribute been a very special horse for you but success breeds success and you've got a couple more two-year-olds that are, have done really well and could yet have their best days ahead of them it's asking a lot for the platinum queen she's already won a Prix de Labbe how is she en route to what what promises to be an absolute humdinger of a race at Keeneland the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf Sprint yeah it's it's it sounds silly there uh, because she's won a group one I definitely want to go uh, it's going to be a tough season for her next year I mean, when you sit down, we we have to look forward. When you sit down and think, well, where's she going? Where's her first race next year with a with a Group One penalty? Well, it's going to be Ascot. Uh, whether we go for Commonwealth Cup or or Kingston, I don't know. We'll see how she trains on. But she 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 sort of start to settle now. But when she came from the breeze, she was wanting wanting to do plenty. Uh, she two speed, steady and and quick. So we didn't actually train her an awful lot at home. She spends a lot of time on the treadmill. But having said that, she's becoming more manageable now. We can we can ride her out normal now. So instead of galloping her, I, I raced her. She's had seven races. This will be a great race in a very short period of time. But physically, looking at her, she's she's done extremely well, and uh, we're quite happy to send her. You know, and I, I I I'm I'm adamant. Trainers know nothing. I promise you. I was uh, she's such a good mover. That I didn't think she'd go on soft ground. Well, put it like this, I didn't think she'd be at her best in it. So I'm looking forward to seeing her running on fast ground um, because uh, I mean, when she when she moves, her, her her feet barely leave the ground, you know, and and she can go quick. So if if you have the ideal horse to take to America, maybe not ideal after seven runs, but if she she she's it now, to be fair, you know. And Midnight Mile, I mean, it's an amazing story with her foaling, and then she had the the break in the middle of the season, came back and surprised some people in the in the Rockfell Stakes. Is she going to get on the plane and go in the longer race? She she's worked this morning. We've been delighted with her. Um, I'm I'm looking for a reason not to send her. I mean, it's a terrible thing for a trainer to say. We do like the filly an awful lot, um, but at the moment, I can't find a reason not to send her. Uh, we've got till Monday, I think, to enter. Uh, I'll get an idea of what's going, but I I just felt the race the other day there would have put her right. Uh, it's a huge run, winning a Group Three after uh, after one start, and would have been a very unlucky loser if that makes sense. But that race just seems to have put her put her right. Uh, physically, she's doing extremely well. 
Uh, as I say, it sounds silly. I'm looking for a reason not to run her, but I can't find it at the moment. And I'd say she she might just be stepping on the plane. Look forward to seeing her and the Platinum Queen. Uh, and lovely tribute to, to Perfect Power, Richard. Thanks so much for talking to me. Do you know, I've nearly got a tear in my eye, Nick, talking about him because he was a star. He was the most lovable horse. People loved him here. We will miss him when he's gone. Thank you, Richard. Cheers, Nick. Thanks. Richard Fahey there, moving words about perfect power and confirmation that Midnight Mile would join the Platinum Queen on the plane to Keeneland. Both would have really interesting chances in the two races that they are they are bound for. Let's talk about um, Bloodstock, Jane, and the annual return of mares, which is wh- where you are told how many mares and which mares, which stallions covered. Um, what do you got for me? Well, there was a release yesterday. Weatherby's just basically reminding us that this is about to be published and whetting the appetite for maybe if we want to to purchase it because it is for anybody involved in bloodstock or has an interest in breeding it is uh, always an interesting read and i was interested to read that the most popular stallion last year was the july cup winner the son of dutch art starman resident at tally ho he covered 254 mares not many will be surprised by that tally ho um, our dab hands at starting out uh, stallion careers. They've done that with Kodiak. They've done that with Society Rock and Kotai Glory in recent years. But uh, this guy, he was good on the track and he's obviously good in the shed. Okay. Uh, what about some of those jump stallions? I'm guessing they've covered hundreds and hundreds of mares, haven't they? Yeah, not a surprise. Uh, the trio of newcomers to the Coolmore roster in Soup, Santiago and Mogul covered 217, 209 and 168 mares respectively. Uh, again, another headline act was Supremacy. He was um, busy. He covered 187 mares at Yeomanstown. Logician was busy at Shade Oak Farm. He covered 183 mares. St. Max Basilica, last year's European champion, covered 176 mares as well. Space Blues uh, for Godolphin up in Kildangan Stud. He covered 160 mares. Um, and Palace Pier, another new recruit for Darley, he covered 154 mares in Dallam Hall. So all interesting numbers. Uh, does it tell us the future? No, but it does tell us the opportunity a stallion gets if they're about if they're going to be a success in the future. Peter Scargill uh, has done a very good piece of digging or a very effective piece of digging for the sidebar on the front page of the Racing Post today, which has confirmed to a wider racing public what the bloodstock cognoscenti uh, were already whispering about that there is a link, a business link between the Bloodstock agent Richard Knight, who has been spending a lot of money at uh, the sales in the autumn, and the part owner of the Derby winner authorised Saleh El Hamedi, whose erstwhile racing partner Imad Al Sagar has uh, really developed quite an interesting string over recent seasons, including Nashua, who's bound for the Breeders' Cup, Philly and Mayor Turf. Al Hamedi himself, it seems, according to Uh, This article, or what we can infer from this article, may well be about to build an empire of his own. That is not confirmed. I spoke to Richard Knight this morning. He said the client or clients that I've been buying for have requested uh, complete confidentiality, and it is my duty to respect that confidentiality. He was uh, was very charming when he took my call, but um, totally understand where he's coming from. But still, um, a good bit of uh, company's house digging from Pete Scargill this. Yes, uh, he dug out that there is a company set up called SYH Bloodstock Limited, that the directors of this company are listed as Richard Knight and um, 
as Al Hamazi as well. And while there isn't any concrete I was purchasing for this person, you can kind of put two and two together. The company was established uh, and listed, the purpose of the company is listed as raising of horses and other equines um, and other sports activities. We know that Richard Knight is listed to have purchased uh, the value sum of 18.5 million pounds of bloodstock between Goffs, Keeneland and Tatterstall's yearling sales. Um, the pinnacle of those purchases being the 2.6 million euro purchase of Blackbeard's full sister um, by Noni Never at the Goffs Orby sale. So Ale, Sally Alhamazi has had some very good horses in partnership in the past and it looks like he's about to fly solo. Yeah, they normally say these great ownership conglomerates are greater than the sum of their parts. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth here. So since they're, they're split, they, they both seem to be, or one has, and one um, is, is purported to be developing really quite a significant empire. So we are never going to complain about more investment in the sport. I want to talk to you about the Irish Jockeys Championship because one or two correspondents have been in touch quite understandably and said we've not given this enough play. This is Jane, Colin Keane and Billy Lee. Now, at the beginning of the season, you and I were like, well, Colin Keane just wins this again, doesn't he? It's all got a bit closer than that. It is. Uh, yesterday, Billy Lee wrote a winner to bring it back to one in between uh, to, to chase down Colin. Colin went four clear um, at the the beginning of last or sorry last weekend Colin went four clear um but Mickey De Steel winning yesterday brought Billy Lee within one again so he's on 84 Colin Keane on 85 there's nine meetings left on the flat in Ireland both of them it needless to say have been riding extraordinarily well this season but I suppose for Billy He's never been champion. He's never even been in contention to be champion. And he's giving it everything he's got. Colin is obviously reigning champion, multiple time champion. And it was almost assumed that it was a formality for him. But it's far from a formality. Both guys are quite an unassuming characters. So they're letting their race riding do the talking. But it's it's making the most mundane flat races very very interesting at this side of the water as the rain teamed down at Navin yesterday you couldn't help but shout on one or two of Billy Lee's rides to help uh, get him a little bit closer and uh, it'll go right down to the wire obviously both riders have very strong patronage whether it be Ger Lyons uh, trying to get Colin over the line and his agent Rory Tierney or Kevin O'Ryan trying to book the rides for Billy Lee, who's had such a great season with Paddy Toomey. The Breeders' Cup is on the horizon. I wonder, are one or both jockeys going to have to forfeit the last couple of meetings in Ireland to go to the States? Um, and that's a question that remains to be answered. But it's down to one, 84-85, right to the wire, Nick. Well, Cox Plate uh, this weekend, and it looks an absolute crackerjack as well. And then we'll be we'll be kicking right the way through and uh, into the Melbourne Cup Carnival, uh, which uh, will culminate on on the first with the with the cup itself. Uh, J- Jockey James McDonald joins me now. Uh, James with two enviable rides, uh, Animo first of all in the in the Cox Plate. James, you you, you know your your main danger Zaki so well too. It, it's going to be a it's going to be a fascinating race between the two. But y- your horse was so good last time. How do you see it shaking down at, at Mooney Valley? Yeah, no, everything's gone really well. Nick, it's um, his his work during the week's been spot on. He's a very happy and happy horse at the moment, and um, he's going into 
the Cox played obviously with a two week um, set up, so he's he's set up to run really well fourth up. Um, he, he should be peaking on the right day. I think two thousand metres is obviously his best trip, and obviously we've got to go up against a, a great horse like Zaki, who's who's a front runner, a leader, He'll give us definitely something to chase. And then you, but he's well up to it, Animo. Um, We've got Al Bonagon, as you guys would all know, um, in the race. He looks a, a smart prospect as well. So it's um, there's a few unknowns as well. I mean, this horse, you didn't ride him last year in the race. Uh, Craig Williams did, but he was beaten a short head by state of rest. I, I, I spent about an hour watching the footage of that stewards inquiry, and I'm still not quite sure how, how Animo didn't get the race. And the state of rest fan club will be throwing stuff at the... <laughs> their devices listening to that but he was he was a bit unlucky wasn't he oh yeah it was for sure but and, and he was a he's a young three-year-old then um he, he was just coming off a, a mile mile run obviously winning the guineas um very impressively this year obviously an end tire um he's fully furnished he's very full of himself and he's had a beautiful platform to really run this race to the best of his ability so really there's no excuses he's got a lovely gait he should give every every opportunity to um, get a really economical trip in transit and hopefully um, he, he, he it's second time lucky for Animo. I must ask you about uh, Zaki because he's a horse you know so well uh, is, is he is he still as good as he was do you think could he still fulfill that dream of, of winning a Cox plate if he's on his A game? Oh, for sure. He's um, the thing about Zaki is he's very consistent throughout um, the last two years. Albeit he hasn't run up to that um, booming booming cup performance, but in saying that, he, he's he's run a very consistent mark all the way through at the highest level. Um, he's a horse that makes his own luck up on speed. I can see him leading this Cox Plate, and if the track is playing quick rail, well, then he's going to enhance his chances even more. But he looks the, definitely the one to beat. Obviously, there's Al Bodegon, as I just mentioned before, who, who looks to quite a smart prospect from up north coming down. Um, they've got a good record in it as well, but uh, and he looks like he makes his own luck up on speed as well. But I think Animo's got a... He's, he's a there's something about him that he's he's got a, a a bullet in his arsenal where he can fire and he's going to look very exceptional. He's uh, like last start, it was you had to see it to believe it. He, he lost several a couple of lengths on the corner and then, like champions do, they rally and 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 win with quite authority in the end with his ears pricked. So he's got a bit up his sleeve and I think just. I gained a lot of confidence out of his setup. I think he's um, he's fourth up, ready to really peak. James, just tell me about your commitments in the in the Melbourne Cup this year. Yeah, looking forward to riding Loft. Um, he, he's he's my ride this year. Um, a German horse, um, you guys would know very well as well. Um, raced at Chester, uh, carrying a, a huge weight. Um, he was beaten fair and square that day, but yeah, like I said, he, I think it was uh, 10 kilos between them, and um, he, he made a, a good, honest run of the race. And he's the trainer is very hap, happy with it. They obviously r- really rate the horse, and um, all all reports he's travelled extremely well. He settled in brilliantly, and um, I, I don't think the team could be much more happier leading into this race. Obviously, not a 
a strong renewal of the race on paper. Um, so it's it's there for a, an obviously a little yeah. X factor horse to come into the race. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, Loft is a is a horse. He's by the late Stallion Adler fluke. He's had an amazing influence from a very very small amount of horses. His best known horse would be Torquato or Tasso, but he's had In Swoop as well. Uh, were you? Did you have your eye on an international horse from from a fairly long way out, thinking right? Well, I need to get myself on something a little bit different. Uh, I, I, look, when, when the weights come out, uh, I'm obviously restricted by the weight a little bit. But in saying that, um, when the Aussie connections, Aussie Kerr himself uh, purchased the horse, he put it straight on our radar, um, and and then he went out and won the Beaumont 3200 meter race. Um, very convincingly and then they said they were going to run him at Chester so I waited to watch obviously Chester I was pretty taken by him but um, Aussie who does the stats and figures quite significantly when purchasing these high price horses says he's well up to it and he's he's travelled well um, and like I said before not the strongest renewal so it's there for the taking and even if he's not a proper A grader, he, he looks very, very competitive. Um, it'll be interesting to see how he measures up against Oval Legend, who looks very, very smart. Well, a big fundraising effort for the Irish injured jockeys is taking place this week in the shape of the Corinthian Challenge. It reaches its final leg on Saturday at Leopardstown. We're going to hear from another one of the participants tomorrow, but first off, let me introduce Peter O'Reilly to the show. I think Peter O'Reilly might actually be aboard the horse that he's riding at the weekend, but I'll find out a little bit more in a few moments' time. Uh, Peter, good morning. Just tell me a little bit about the Corinthian Challenge and what you guys have been doing. Good morning, Nick. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Uh, The Corinthian Challenge is a three-race series uh, where participants have to raise 10 grand all in aid of a very good cause, namely the Irish injured jockeys. So Leopard Town on Saturday is the final leg, and we've been to the Curra in July and uh, Gorn in September. 14 participants, a nice mix, male and female, probably slightly more girls, and all with a big affection for the industry and the injured jockeys. And all with, with good reasons for wanting to raise money for the injured jockeys as well. Just tell everybody a little bit about why you're doing this specifically. Well, uh, I, I'm a big fan of the charity uh, for what it does for, for not only jockeys, but you know, uh, jockeys actually riding with jockeys who uh, have fallen in hard times, etc. And uh, I just, you know, having uh, I've been involved in horse all my life, so it was a, had a natural uh, link with it, so to speak. Um, I've done stuff before for the injured jockeys. I did a big ride around the race courses back in 2005, or 2015, I should say, to raise a few quid. And uh, I just said I'd give this a shot. So it's a really worthy initiative. And it's great camaraderie and great crack among the crew that does it. Now, how did the first two legs go? How did you get on? <laughs> no, I thought you were going to ask that question. <laughs> Not great. I'm improving. I was last the first time out on a horse kindly supplied by Dennis Hogan. I was ninth on a horse very kindly supplied by Ted Walsh in Goran. And now I'm going to... Uh, ride in, um, sorry, just a sec, uh, I'm riding in Leopardtown uh, on a horse, very kindly supplied by Martin Wazilaka, who's from, uh, who's an owner and a friend of mine called Enki Flack, trained by Gordon Elliott. Okay, so you're, you're definitely going up in the world, no disrespect to the previous trainers you, you, you've ridden for. This could be the one, right? Yeah, this could be the one that'll hopefully give me the top four. So have you been, have you been getting a sit on, on this horse? Yeah, I don't know. I'm with Gordon this morning, or with Simon McGonagall, who's been very helpful here. 
But uh, I've been riding out with Tad Walsh and Willie McCreary, who's also a good friend, all summer. And I ride out all year round, all, all, uh, every Saturday. Grant, so you're in, you're in good shape, you're fit, you're improving. You did, you did better in the second leg than the first. Uh, how can we get involved? How can we donate? Well, I've set up a, I'm sort of the 10 grand, I'm at six and I'm at the final part of it. So I'm trying to raise the last, uh, last four or five grand, Nick. So I've set up an auction with some really good, well, I think really different prizes, like a, a lunch with John O'Connor at Bally Lynch and seeing all the standards and chatting to him. A day in the gallops with Katie Walsh, uh, if you're into breezing. Nita um, Cantlin and Dermot Cantlin, Tinnacle Stud, how to breed good horses, stuff like that. And they, the website for the auction is the final furlong Corinthian Challenge Auction.com. And people can go on and just bid all in aid of a good cause. All right, my thanks to Peter. Best of luck to all uh, of the competitors in the Corinthian Challenge. And we will be hearing from another uh, rider in that event tomorrow on the podcast. Jane Mangan is still with me and has a tip for you for this afternoon. Yes, great to see Thurless back on a Thursday with National Hunt Racing and I'm going for the 420. It's only a seven-runner field, so each way betting isn't uh, applied here. But I like Cape Gentleman. He hasn't run over hurdles since he ran a really good race in the Galway hurdle two years ago. And uh, I think with Emmett Mullins and Donna Myler in flying form from their French win at the weekend, Cape Gentleman might just bring up another winner here. But Jane, splendid. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. If you do enjoy this podcast, please do tell your friends. And if you would be kind enough to leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast, that would be great also. That was Thursday, October the 20th. We will see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.